We present the second in the Fine Mind series of lectures, a collaboration between Fine Music Radio and the University of Cape Town's Centre for Extramural Studies, which will already be known to many of our listeners for its annual summer school program. Fenwala Dowling, Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Extramural Studies, introduces today's lecturer and his topic. Our Fine Minds lecturer today is the historian Professor Colin Bundy, recently retired principal of Green Templeton College, Oxford. Before his Oxford experience, Professor Bundy was Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Witwatersrand and Principal of the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Professor Bundy's lecture today is entitled Addressing Mandela. At one level, it's about Nelson Mandela and clothes. The lecture uses details of Mandela's dress at different stages of his life as a narrative device, an unconventional route to a biography. At a deeper level, the lecture asks what such details reveal about Mandela the man, Mandela the politician, and Mandela the icon. Here is Addressing Mandela by Professor Colin Bundy. The sociologist Fatima Mir met Nelson Mandela when they were both students in the late 1940s, and she sustained a friendship with him for over 50 years. In the 1990s, she was interviewed by Anthony Sampson, who was writing his massive biography of Mandela. Sampson briefly compared Mandela to Mahatma Gandhi. Mir laughed and said, Gandhi took off his clothes, Nelson loves his clothes. Her comment was facetious, but it was also entirely accurate. Clothes mattered a great deal to Mandela. As I shall argue this evening, Mandela was acutely aware of his appearance, of how he was dressed, and of the impression he was making. Such awareness was a core part of the public Mandela, Mandela as politician, which is to say Mandela as performer and persuader. His appearance was important to him, not only because of the streak of vanity that he undoubtedly possessed, but also because from early in his career, Mandela was singularly conscious of his presence, his impact on others, and of his image, how he was perceived by others. This awareness translated into his political appeal especially after his release in 1990. Mandela became a maestro of image management and symbolic politics. So with Fatima Mir's observation as a starting point, Nelson loves his clothes. This lecture is at one level an account of Mandela and clothes. It uses details of his dress at different stages of his life as a motif, as a narrative device, a way of thinking about his life. There is abundant evidence. There are over 40 references to clothes in Mandela's autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, plus many others in books and articles about Mandela. And, of course, there's a wealth of visual material in photographs, film and television footage. The broad contours of Mandela's life story are familiar to a South African audience. I'm going to traverse them once again, but will use details of dress and appearance to illustrate them. Then, 
having told this story from Tolza Boy's blanket to the resplendent Madiba shirt that his body wore when his coffin was displayed in Pretoria, I will ask what such sartorial details reveal about Mandela the man, Mandela the politician, and Mandela the icon. There are, of course, countless other ways of assessing Mandela's life and career, but I am using one particular lens, the clothes worn with such conspicuous flair by Mandela, in order to explore the man's attributes and achievements from a slightly different perspective. To begin at the beginning in the rural Transkei in the 1920s, only a few pages into Long Walk, Mandela writes about his entry to the one-room local primary school when he was seven years old. And I'm quoting, The day before I was to begin, my father took me aside and told me that I must be dressed properly for school. Until that time, I, like all the other boys in Klunu, had worn only a blanket which was wrapped around one shoulder and pinned at the waist. My father took a pair of his trousers and cut them at the knee. They were roughly the correct length, although the waist was far too large. My father then took a piece of string and drew the trousers in at the waist. I must have been a comical sight, but I've never owned a suit that I was prouder to wear than my father's cut-off trousers. End quote. And Mandela's first day at that tiny Methodist mission school was indeed momentous. It marked his entry to an educated elite, his first steps in a schooling that would set him apart from the majority of his Tembu peers. A few years later, even greater changes took place in the young boy's life. His father died, and his mother delivered him to the Tembu Great Place, or Royal Court. The regent, Jongintaba Dalindiebo, had promised the boy's father that he would look after him, and he now took Nelson in and treated him as a member of the family. When his mother took leave of him, she said, Brace yourself, my boy. How could I not be braced up, wrote Mandela later. I was already wearing the handsome new outfit purchased for me by my guardian. And Mandela's autobiography makes it clear that his altered status was matched by new conventions of dress and deportment. The Tembu Great Place was a mission station where, wrote Mandela, people dressed in modern clothes. The men wore suits and the women affected the severe Protestant style of the missionaries, thick long skirts and high-necked blouses. The young boy did various errands for the regent, and, he wrote, the one I enjoyed most was pressing his suits, a job in which I took great pride. He owned half a dozen western suits, and I spent many an hour carefully making the creases in his trousers. The youngster's move to the Tembu Great Place italicized, as it were, elements of his identity. Born a headman's son, he was now the regent's ward. Baptized as a Methodist, 
He was now in a household where religion was part of the fabric of life. Having taken his first steps to literacy in Kunu, he was now required by his guardian to be properly educated. This meant boarding school, first at Clarkbury and then to Hilltown for his senior certificate, and finally to Fort Hare, the only institution of higher learning for African students in the country. Boarding school was marked by his first pair of boots, polished by the proud teenager, but worn awkwardly, he says, like a newly shod horse. Admission to Fort Hare meant new sartorial heights. Before I went up to the university, he wrote, the regent bought me my first suit, double-breasted and grey. The suit made me feel grown-up and sophisticated. I was twenty-one years old and could not imagine anyone at Fort Hare smarter than I. And there is a well-known photograph of the young Mandela in this suit, arms folded, tie, white kerchief and wristwatch visible, the gaze away from camera, self-consciously handsome. It's tempting to speculate on what might have been had Mandela completed his BA degree at Fort Hare. A handsome and natally dressed young man, keen on music and ballroom dancing, he might have returned to the Transkei to take up a post as a court interpreter, his modest ambition at the time. But before completing his degree, he refused to back down in a row with the principal and was expelled. And this precipitated the second great rupture in his life. He returned to the great place and to the displeasure of Jongintaba. Displeasure became fury two months later. The regent had identified two women whom he wished Mandela and his own son, Justice, to marry. The young men fled from the arranged nuptials and made their way to Johannesburg. Mandela was 23 years old when he arrived in the big city, by his own account a country youngster utterly unprepared for urban life. Unprepared he may have been, but he was not without resources. Firstly, Mandela had entered manhood as a member of two overlapping elites, the Tembu aristocracy and the upper reaches of a highly educated meritocracy. His self-confidence, soon on display in Johannesburg, was surely rooted in esteem accrued in the great place and in the classroom. Secondly, his intelligence and education opened doors to him in Johannesburg that would have been closed to most Africans. By 1943, Mandela had secured a position as an article clerk in a legal firm and had set his sights on becoming a lawyer. But before entering white-collar work, Mandela worked as a rent collector and briefly as a night watchman at Crown Mines. Thanks to his account in Long Walk, we know how he was accoutred for this lowly role. I was given a uniform, a new pair of boots, a helmet, a flashlight, a whistle, and a knobkerry. It was about then that he met a fellow Transkyan, Walter Sisulu, who was working as an estate agent. 
Sisulu became his closest and most influential friend, a political mentor and a comrade in arms. Mandela recalls their first meeting. Sisulu, he wrote, had an intelligent and kindly face and was dressed in a double-breasted suit." Unquote. It was Sisulu who facilitated Mandela's job in the law firm. Johannesburg was absolutely crucial in shaping Mandela personally, professionally and politically. He spent most of the 1940s and all of the 1950s in the city and these were dramatic decades. The African townships swirled with culture and creativity. Mandela recalled with relish the gangsters in Alexandra who wore fedoras and double-breasted suits and wide, colourful ties. Sophia Town, in particular, was home to an edgy, eclectic mix of cultural energies. A generation of writers, musicians, photographers and artists reflected the exuberance of the place, its shebeens, dance halls and the Odin cinema. American influences permeated township jazz, township gangs and township journalism so that the comparison with the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s is apt. Life in these vibrant and violent townships was increasingly punctuated by episodes of political protest and mobilization. There were anti-pass campaigns, bus boycotts and wildcat strikes. There were squatters movements when landless people settled on unoccupied land and in 1946 there was a momentous strike by African miners. Quite apart from these flashpoints, simply living in Johannesburg had a politicizing effect. Political realities were inescapable. White authority and wealth existed cheek by jowl with black poverty and powerlessness. This basic lesson was dramatized by the daily journey from township to city. It was reenacted in countless petty slights of institutionalized racism. It was brutally scripted in the passbook that Mandela, like all African men, had to carry. These then were the currents, a vibrant urban cultural life, black working class protests, and a daily experience of exclusion and prejudice in which the young Mandela had to keep afloat and to navigate. He did so with aplomb. And, again, Mandela has left a series of pointers to his appearance, his self-presentation and dress during the 1940s. He had not worked long in the legal firm when a colleague invited him to a multiracial party. It made the young Mandela anxious. Quote, I did not think I had the proper attire. At Fort Hare, we were taught to wear a tie and jacket to a social function of any kind. Though my wardrobe was severely limited, I managed to find a tie to wear to the party. And indeed, Nelson Mandela's suits provide a thumbnail sketch of his professional career. When he began as an article clerk, 
He wore a second-hand suit, stitched and patched, a gift from his employer, Lazar Skidelsky. But when he completed his B.A. by correspondence and returned to Fort Hare to graduate, quote, I decided to treat myself to a proper suit. In order to do so, I had to borrow the money from Walter Sisulu. Before long, social anxieties and financial pressures eased. Mandela was in a middle-class job, registered at Witz for a law degree, and as he gained experience, his salary rose. At Witz, Ismail Mir recalled, Mandela was the best-dressed student in their circle. Mir invited Mandela to a sale of clothes at Frederdorp, and I'm quoting, he looked down his nose and said, I shop at Markham's. A couple of years later, he was having his suits handmade by the same tailor who dressed Harry Oppenheimer. In 1952, Mandela and Oliver Tambo opened their law firm, and for a few years it prospered. In Johannesburg, as a practicing attorney, Mandela wrote, I had become a man of the city. I wore smart suits. I drove a colossal Oldsmobile. If Mandela had taken large strides professionally by the early 1950s, there were also significant changes in his political and personal life. Towards the end of 1943, Sisulu introduced Mandela to Anton Lembede, a brilliant puritanical firebrand, South Africa's Robespierre. Lembede was the intellectual leader of a group of young men who began to lobby for the creation of a youth league within the ANC. And in April 1944, the youth league was launched and Mandela elected to its executive. The youth leaguers criticized their elders for being too conservative and for lacking clear goals. They promised to become the brains trust and power station of African nationalism. They were, Tom Lodge has pointed out, the first substantial cohort of African middle-class professionals to make political activism the central focus of their lives. And this helps explain why they quickly won positions of influence in the parent body. In 1949, the ANC adopted the Youth League's program of action. This committed the ANC to the use of boycotts, strikes, and civil disobedience in the pursuit of national freedom. In 1950, Mandela was appointed to a vacant position in the African National Congress's National Executive Committee. He had become a political heavyweight. In his personal life, Mandela indulged his love of music and dancing and was a keen boxer. In 1944, he married Evelyn Marse, a nurse and a distant relative of Walter Sisulu. In 1946, the young couple were allocated a small house in Orlando East and a year later, a three-roomed house in Orlando West. They had three children, two sons and a daughter. Mandela took an active part when he could in bringing up the children he bathed and fed the babies, told them stories before sleep, he shopped and occasionally cooked. In 
However, as he acknowledged, the pleasures of domesticity were rationed. His increasing political role meant, quote, I was rarely at home to enjoy such things. By the early 1950s then, Mandela was successful, increasingly prominent in the ANC, and strikingly visible. The novelist Lewis and Causey recalls him at this time. A tall, handsome man with hair parted in the middle, wearing a charcoal grey suit and flashing a big, white-toothed smile of success. And in her autobiography, Call Me Woman, Ellen Cusuayo wrote, I remember the glamorous Nelson Mandela of those years. The beautiful white silk scarf he wore round his neck stands out in my mind to this day. In 1956, Mandela divorced Evelyn and married the beautiful young Winnie Madikazela. The couple often featured in the pages of Drum magazine, radiating style, confidence and ambition. Drum's lively photojournalism was aimed directly at a black readership. And in its pages, Mandela became a visually public personality, South Africa's first black political celebrity, 40 years before he became a global celebrity. In 1956, Nelson Mandela was one of over 150 people arrested and charged with high treason. For the next four years, he spent long hours in court as the treason trial ground on and on, the case finally collapsing in March 1961. Media coverage of the treason trial produced some of the most striking images of Mandela that exist. He turned 40 midway through the trial. Photographs by Alf Kumalo, Peter Magubani and others reveal an imposing figure, tall, often towering above his co-accused, lightly bearded and with the distinctive deep side parting in his hair. The sequence of pictures taken by Kumalo at the conclusion of the trial, feature Mandela in a three-piece suit, waistcoat and jacket buttoned. He is elegant, relaxed, debonair. He looks every inch the lawyer leader. But his circumstances and his dress changed dramatically in the months that followed. It was March 1961 when the treason trial finally ended, and of course a year earlier, in March 1960, the Sharpeville massacre had occurred, followed by the banning of the PAC and the ANC, by the declaration of a state of emergency, and the detention under its terms of over 2,000 activists. The landscape of South African politics had been redrawn. And when Kumalo photographed the beaming Mandela at the end of the treason trial, the decision had already been taken that the ANC would continue to operate illegally in defiance of its banning. It had also been decided that Mandela should go into hiding. A small group of trusted comrades shuttled him from one safe house to another until he moved to the hideout at Lily's Leaf Farm in Ravonia. For a few months during 1961, 
Mandela held a series of clandestine meetings with journalists and editors, pressing the justice of his cause. The press dubbed him the Black Pimpernel, and Mandela cultivated the mystique that the soubriquet conferred. Mandela also clearly enjoyed the challenge of living and operating underground, and three decades later he wrote with relish about the disguises and costumes that he adopted in doing so. Just as there is a way, he wrote, to walk into a room in order to make yourself stand out, there is a way of walking and behaving that makes you inconspicuous. When underground, I did not walk as tall or stand as straight. I was more passive, more unobtrusive. I did not shave or cut my hair. My most frequent disguise was as a chauffeur, chef, or garden boy. I would wear the blue overalls of the field worker and often wore round, rimless glasses known as Nazawati tea glasses." Unquote. As chauffeur, he wore a cap and a long coat. On other occasions, he wore oil-stained mechanics overalls. When moving at night, he dressed as a night watchman with a grey overcoat and big earrings. Mandela's comrades at Lilliesleaf urged him to shave off his recently acquired beard as this was the image being circulated by police. But he resisted their advice, arguing that I had become attached to my beard. Looking back, Ahmed Kathrada remarked wryly that Nelson must have known how the beard enhanced his looks and personality. Throughout 1961, Mandela was one of a group of senior ANC leaders working closely with members of the Underground Communist Party who took the decision to abandon non-violence as a principle and instead to move to armed struggle. He also played a central role in establishing Mkontowesizwe, MK, and in planning a series of sabotage attacks on selected targets designed to avoid casualties. The first explosions took place on the 16th of December 1961. And just three weeks later, Mandela left South Africa, slipping over the border into Botswana, then still Bechuanaland. The ANC wanted him to attend a scheduled meeting of newly independent African states, where he would seek to win political and material support for armed struggle. From Bechuanaland, he flew to Tanzania, where he was met at the airport by Frene Ginwala. She had been charged by Oliver Tambo to meet Mandela and to bury, that is, to hide him. She was expecting to meet a soberly suited traveller, but Mandela arrived wearing a conical Sutu hat, a safari suit, and thigh-high mosquito boots. And I'm supposed to bury you, she exclaimed. Mandela spent just six months visiting a dozen African countries, including brief spells of military training in Ethiopia and Algeria. Indeed, when he returned to South Africa clandestinely in July 1962, he was wearing his military training fatigues. After briefing ANC and MK seniors at Lilliesleaf, he left for Natal, 
brushing aside concerns about the safety of the trip. On the last night of his Natal visit, he attended a Congress party, again in military khakis. The next day, August the 5th, he was arrested outside Hawick. After the PAC was formed in 1958, Mandela was at pains to challenge its claims that it was more authentically an African movement. And in order to provide a visual reminder of his own authentic identity, Mandela was photographed by Eli Weinberg in a carefully posed sequence of pictures. This produced the familiar image of a seated Mandela, his torso bared, wearing a beaded necklace and bracelets, with a blanket over one shoulder. The message was clear. Here was a dignified, powerful African man in traditional dress. The blanket, incidentally, was a candlewick bedspread pressed into service as a photographic prop. Even more explicit was Mandela's stage management of his trial in Pretoria in October 1962. Charged with inciting a strike and with leaving the country illegally, he defended himself. When the trial began, he entered the courtroom wearing a traditional Kosa karos. Winnie, too, attended the trial wearing Kosa headwear and ankle-length skirt. Mandela's costume expressed visually what he told the magistrate, quote, that this trial is a trial of the aspirations of the African people. In Long Walk to Freedom, he spelled it out. I had chosen traditional dress to emphasize the symbolism that I was a black African walking into a white man's court. I was literally carrying on my back the history, culture, and heritage of my people." Unquote. Mandela was sentenced to five years imprisonment. His brief career as outlaw and guerrilla, audacious, flamboyant, and reckless, was over. Instead of loyally suits, or disguises, or military fatigues, now came standard prison clothing. Mandela was already in prison when his comrades were arrested at Lilithi Farm in July 1963. He joined them in Pretoria as accused number one in the Ravonia trial. The accused faced charges of sabotage. And it was here that Mandela made his famous statement from the dock, a ringing manifesto claiming the moral and political high ground. Its celebrated closing passage, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die, is all the more memorable given that the men in the dock faced the very real possibility of death sentences. Instead, they were sentenced to life imprisonment. As the trial ended on the 12th of June 1964, Mandela and six others were flown in a military airplane to a cold, wet, windy Robben Island. Mandela's first protest upon arrival at Robben Island, very much in keeping with the theme of this lecture, was about clothing. 
he objected to the standard prison issue of short trousers for African prisoners, and within days a pair of long trousers appeared in his cell. No pinstripe three-piece suit has ever pleased me as much, he later wrote. But his demand that the same concession be extended to his comrades was refused, and so Mandela handed his back. Africans were only permitted long trousers three years later, and in 1969 each of the political prisoners received their own individual uniforms, wrote Mandela, which actually fitted us and we were allowed to wash ourselves." The fight for improved conditions was a constant of life on the island and has been extensively described elsewhere. There are also accounts of Mandela's strategy in dealing with warders and other prison officers. He was willing to be polite and to show respect, but on condition that he and the others were treated respectfully and reasonably. And there is abundant evidence of the psychic pain experienced by political prisoners, of being cut off from friends and family, and of the dreadful sense of the best years of their lives draining away amidst the tedium and monotony of prison life. But I am going to fast forward to April 1982, when Mandela and four others were suddenly moved from the island to Polesmoor Prison on the mainland. There, a new, unprecedented, and dramatic chapter of Mandela's life unfolded. It was at Polesmoor, and subsequently at Victor Vestere Prison outside Powell, that Mandela entered secret talks with representatives of the apartheid regime. He did so, initially, without telling his closest associates. Not Walter Sisulu, alongside him in Polesmoor, nor Oliver Tambo, head of the exiled ANC in Lusaka. Mandela now believed that a military victory by the ANC was, quote, a distant, if not impossible, dream. It was time to talk, unquote. And, importantly, key figures in P.W. Buerta's government had reached the same conclusion. Apartheid could not survive. The sooner we negotiated a new system, the better, wrote a senior figure in the National Intelligence Service. It takes two to tango, and both partners had good reasons for taking to the dance floor. Altogether, some 50 meetings took place between Mandela and government representatives. These were talks about talks, clearing the way towards the substantive negotiations that began in 1990. Apparel and appearance feature frequently in Mandela's own account of these secret talks and also in the account of others. Dr. Neil Barnard chaired the small committee which conducted most of the talks with Mandela. And Barnard recalls their first meeting in the office of the head of Polesmoor Prison. I'm quoting, Mr. Mandela came in in an overall and boots. Even in an overall and boots, he has a commanding kind of presence and personality. And afterwards, we arranged with Willy Willemser, 
head of the prison service, that at any future meeting Mandela would be clothed in such a way that it served his dignity and his pride as a human being." Unquote. In 1986, Mandela met with members of the Commonwealth Eminent Persons Group. Two days before their meeting, writes Mandela, the commanding officer ushered in a tailor. Mandela, said Brigadier Monroe, we want you to see these people on an equal footing. We don't want you to wear these old prison clothes, so this tailor will take your measurements and outfit you with a proper suit. The very next day, wrote Mandela, I tried on a pinstriped suit that fitted me like a glove. I was also given a shirt, ties, shoes, socks and underwear. The commander admired my new attire. Mandela, you look like a prime minister now, not a prisoner, he said and smiled. In 1989, Mandela was taken from Victor Fester to meet President Buerta. The significance of their encounter, again, was expressed sartorially. Mandela told the commander that while he looked forward to meeting Buerta, he felt that he should have a new suit and tie for the occasion. The general agreed, quote, and a short time later, a tailor appeared to take my measurements. The following morning, Major Marer arrived. I stood in front of him in my new suit for inspection. He walked around me and then shook his head from side to side. No, Mandela, your tie, he said. Because out of practice, Mandela had tied a clumsy knot. Quote again, Major Marer removed my tie and then standing behind me, tied it in a double Windsor knot. Much better, he said. And then when they arrived at Tainhuis, while Mandela and the others waited to go in, and I'm quoting, Dr. Barnard looked down and noticed that my shoelaces were not properly tied, and he quickly knelt down to tie them for me." Unquote. The symbolism of that moment is so explicit that it requires no commentary. Mandela was released from Victor Fester on February 11, 1990, and the photograph of him, immaculately suited, fist held high, is iconic. For the next four years, Mandela was involved in negotiations, in ceaseless international travel, and then in the 1994 election campaign. He experimented with a more relaxed look. He tried wearing his ordinary shirt outside his trousers. But it was on his visit to Indonesia in 1990 that President Sukarto presented him with some of the highly patterned, brightly coloured silk shirts that were subsequently to become his trademark, the Madiba shirt. He told a child who asked about the dress, I was in jail for 27 years. I want to feel freedom. By the time of his first state visit to the United Kingdom, Mandela was so at ease with his celebrity status that he flouted protocol and wearing a Madiba shirt famously invited Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles to join him doing his jive. History will assess Mandela in all the roles that he played over a long life. But arguably his greatest moment 
and what he will be remembered for longest was that run-up to the 1994 election and the years that immediately followed it. For in the mid-1990s, Mandela bestrode the national stage. More than any other politician, he spoke for black South Africans, and more than any other politician, he reassured white South Africans that they could be part of the new order. In those tense years of transition and uncertainty, what Mandela did and said, what he came to represent, gave South Africans something to hold on to. He crafted a narrative of redemption and renewal for South Africans to believe in. And time and time again, Mandela used his skills, the memory for names, the warmth of his presence, the megawatt brilliance of that smile, to conjure respect and affection. He was superb at the politics of gesture, finding the symbolic moment because he understood it. And he used that politics to win support. And it worked because he was sincere in wanting it to work. His ability to charm and to disarm meant playing a role for which he had developed the perfect personality. This was a demanding form of politics. It involved being constantly in the public eye, in the media and in person. Every day was a political performance. And this meant being dressed for the part. Think just of the 1994 election campaign. In 1994, wrote Anthony Sampson, his previous images, chief, showman, revolutionary, guerrilla leader, prisoner, statesman, were now subsumed by the image of Mandela at the hustings, the vote winner, immeasurably the ANC's greatest electoral asset. He would play a different role to each audience, and he might change his clothing three or four times a day to match the setting and who was present. Once he was president, Mandela's keynotes were forgiveness and reconciliation as the first steps to nation-building. He not only preached reconciliation, he tirelessly reenacted it. There was a reconciliation lunch for widows of both Afrikaner politicians and their black opponents. There was his visit to have tea with Mrs. Betsy Verwut, too frail to attend that lunch. And of course, there was his appearance in the Springbok rugby shirt. When the team lifted the World Cup, when white rugby fans chanted, Nelson, Nelson, and South Africans of all races wept with joy and disbelief. In that single moment, Mandela's flair for wearing the right clothes and for striking the right symbolic note reached perhaps their apogee. His clothes and his politics were a perfect fit. This lecture has used Mandela's clothes and appearance as a narrative device. I now want to step back from the details of Mandela's career and ask what larger significance, if any, is suggested by a focus on clothing. And the first thing to note is that several other scholars have previously emphasized Mandela as a performer, as acutely aware of his audience, and attentive to his appearance.
Elika Boma writes, quote, It is well known that throughout his career, Mandela made a point of looking groomed. He especially enjoyed being the cynosure of women's eyes. More than this, Boma also speaks of Mandela's chameleon-like talent for donning different guises, his theatrical flair for costume and gesture, his shrewd awareness of the power of his own image. And similarly, Tom Lodge, in his biography of Mandela, emphasizes, and I'm quoting, Mandela's political actions as performance, self-consciously planned, scripted to meet public expectations, and calculated to shift popular sentiment, unquote. Lodge also argued that clothing, costume, and style are indispensable components in the different personae that Mandela assumes. Biographer Anthony Sampson agrees, and he quotes Barbara Masakella, who helped run Mandela's office once he was president. His clothes were not peripheral, they were central to his political life. And finally, Richard Stengel was the journalist drafted to cooperate with Mandela in preparing Long Walk to Freedom for publication. Stengel saw a great deal of Mandela over 18 months, and I'm going to quote now from Stengel at some length. Mandela loves clothes. He always has. He would not say that clothes make the man, but they do make an immediate impression. His view is that if you want to play the part, you have to wear the right costume. Throughout his life, Mandela always looked and played the part. But Mandela was concerned about appearances on a far grander scale than just which suit he was wearing. He understood the power of image. Long before the internet and 24 hours cable news, Mandela thought deeply about how his actions would be interpreted. Appearances constitute reality, he once said to me. That's the end of that quote. Stengel also wrote, about Mandela's attention to the minutiae of his public appearances. I'm quoting again, he analyzed campaign posters and pondered whom he should shake hands with. Many times I sat next to him in the back of his car as he waited for the precise moment to emerge at an event. Whenever he was exiting an airplane or entering a room, he was aware of the figure that he cut and of the exact moment that would earn him maximum attention." Unquote. And so, throughout his life, writes Stengel, Mandela cultivated and curated images of himself. At every stage of his life, he decided who he wanted to be and created the appearance and then the reality of that person. He became who he wanted to be. End quote. Nelson Mandela became who he wanted to be. He developed a persona that made full use of his attributes, including his looks. And, I have suggested in this lecture, one of the ways in which he did so was by a consistent and meticulous concern for the clothes he wore. Mandela had the gift of the garb. 
That was the second lecture in our Fine Minds series of lectures, a collaboration between Fine Music Radio and the University of Cape Town's Centre for Extramural Studies. People of note will be back at the same time next week.